1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the Red Box podcast. I'm Matt Shorley. Not long to go now until referendum day, depending on which newspaper you read. The panic in the Remain camp is either blind, total or everywhere. But we're going to try and move on to other things in the podcast this week. We're joined by Tim Montgomery, Times columnist and former host of this podcast, Tim is spending much of his time in America, which is once again dealing with the aftermath of a mass shooting with the wannabe presidents using the Orlando attack to score political points. Times journalist Lucy Bannerman will describe what happens when interviews go bad. But first, Lucy Fisher, the senior political correspondent for The Times, on what's going on behind the scenes in the Labour Party.
3: Speculation and intrigue are swirling in Westminster about the future of Labour's leadership. Amid rumours of stalling coups among so-called moderates, the ambitions of John McDonnell, Labour's Shadow Chancellor, have also been called into question. The discovery of an allegedly secret policy advisor, the revelation of transition planning in his diary and his conspicuous tour of the UK have roused suspicions that he may be hoping to take over, in time, from Jeremy Corbyn as Labour leader.
2: Now Lucy, this is really interesting because, I mean, Labour leadership rumblings are quite low down on the on the agenda, on the the political agenda at the moment, but you've picked up quite a lot of evidence of what John Macdonald's up to.
3: Well, I think that's right. I mean... Y- in one sense, it's true that the the leadership question ha- has gone away. But as Jeremy Corbyn's been accused of doing so little, having such a lacklustre approach to the EU referendum, there's a lot of grumbling from many quarters of the party uh, about his sort of failure to do enough. Um, failure he sort of denies, I should probably add. Would Dan Jarvis have a chance in the future? Would and Amuna have a chance at sort of ousting him? John Macdonald seems to be doing a lot of planning in the background and he's used the EU referendum to launch his own campaign, which is separate from the official Labour in for Britain campaign, to to go around the UK. And and I'm just interested in why is he going to all these constituencies, having all these meetings... it raises a lot of questions.
2: And, and Team McDonald are sort of quite enjoying themselves at the moment. They feel like they've made a bit of the running. I was, I was talking to, to one of McDonald's aides uh, yesterday who was saying how pleased they were that his phrase Tory Brexit is now being used. It was even used by Yvette Cooper, they said delightfully. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Proof of how far the McDonald influence is going, as if uh, such an outrider as Yvette Cooper is using it. And they, they do feel like they're having quite a good referendum at a time when most people say Corbyn isn't.
3: I think that's right. And, and there's been a lot of criticism um, about John McDonnell really leading this push, ordering Labour politicians to stay away from platforms with Conservatives. Um, and that's been controversial. Many people say the E-referendum. This is a big question about our future. It's more important than party politics. But actually, I think it's been a canny move from a purely party political strategy point of view. We saw what happened in the Scottish independence referendum. John MacDonald has kept a very Labour-only, left-wing, progressive argument for staying in the EU, made it more about workers' rights, um, had a distinctive argument from the Conservatives. So I agree, I think he is having a good referendum campaign.
2: Now, Tim, the interesting thing about John Macdonald is that the Tory is about the only people he wouldn't share a platform with. And his, although he's probably a cannier operator than Jeremy Corbyn, he He probably has more skeletons in his closet, if you like that might make him an
0: unlikely choice, an even more unlikely choice mm. if such a thing were possible as a labor leader I don't know. I sort of watched him on Peston on Sunday uh this week, and again, I thought you know he's nine out of ten times he looks a reasonable, credible performer, you know Ruth Davidson was on the same program and said every time she looks at him, she sees someone who wanted the i r a to win you know so there's a reminder that for many Conservatives he is toxic and he has this toxic past if he was ever to become Labour leader but he does look more of the part than Jeremy Corbyn and he is um, more reasonable, he's focused on the economic issues that I think are much more where Labour need to be. Jeremy Corbyn has always had this foreign policy emphasis that I don't think helps him connect with, with voters but yeah, I agree with what Lucy says. It's fascinating that uh, she's she, she's picked this up. But I think Labour's problem on Europe is not exactly how they're presenting themselves, but their working class vote um, is very angry about the level of immigration. And no Labour politician, John McDonnell or anyone, is really responding to that. And However good John Macdonald makes the case for staying inside the EU, if they haven't got an answer to how they control immigration, they've got a problem.
2: Lucy, Bannerman on the on the phone. What do you make of John Macdonald as a as an alternative Labour leader?
0: Uh,
4: the whole campaign um, so far, for me, well, first of all, John McDonnell seems to have been fairly absent. I've not felt there's been a strong Labour argument there to to hold on to. And more generally, what I've felt this time around, it's the same with the Scottish referendum not so long ago, it's that too much of the debate seems to, be, seems to boil down to two sides arguing over you know, whose crystal ball is the most accurate. There's this absolute lack of strong facts there, and I think a lot of the electorate must be getting frustrated and, and just turned off by the whole thing. Whether John MacDonald has contributed anything further to that, I'm not sure.
2: I think there's an interesting question about Labour's problem with just about its inability to generate news and actually for them mm. to have any cut through in the referendum campaign the Tory side, the number 10 side has to completely shut down and basically say look over there there's Gordon Brown Gordon Brown is not a current member of the shadow cabinet and, and actually on their own John McDonnell, Hillary Bain can't generate news and when Jeremy Corbyn does it's not always beneficial to the campaign.
0: Yeah I think that's, that's absolutely true and I think one of Labour's problems is they are led by someone who does not really believe in the case that they're making. Ian Duncan Smith wrote for your Red Box, Matt, um, Tuesday morning, t- 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 this morning, that he, as one of the most Eurosceptic rebels in the modern Conservative Party history, never voted with jeremy corbyn on any issue other than europe you know they found themselves in the division lobbies voting against more europe jeremy corbyn has been doing this for years and years and years and suddenly when the brexit question comes up he's in favor of the eu and i think voters can smell there's something fishy that jeremy corbyn's hearts not in it and when he does pop up to make any news at all it's to say all oh, this scaremongering by George Osborne is unbelievable and things you know it's a so off message it's um it's helpful to leave rather than remain but what's interesting actually about the the Corbyn factor is that he because he's in a less adept
2: he can't cover up what he really thinks in a way that actually John, John McDonnell is much better at being a sort of typical politician lying through his teeth or Whatever,
3: Lucy. I think that's that's true in some senses, but I also think Jeremy Corbyn's ambivalence, which is, as you say, far more obvious than than John Macdonald that sort of holds it, holds the line together a bit better, um, is that it feels much more in line with what many people who are planning to vote Remain feel. You know, yeah. oh, not you know terribly keen about mm. the EU, but I guess in the end it's probably best for the economy or whatever. So it doesn't surprise me that Jeremy Corbyn's trust ratings on the EU are far higher than David Cameron's are far higher than Boris Johnson's.
2: Yeah, that's true. And I think that his go on then, I think we probably should stay in, is an argument. He's just possibly not that, like, <laughs> always yes, that good at deploying it. Yes, that's true.
3: And I think another point, you know, you asked, raised the question, you know, it's so difficult for them to sort of really be part of this narrative. For me, it's slightly a bigger problem than just the EU. Labour feels so far from power that, mm-hmm. you know, to have the Tory wars and cabinet ministers really going bare fists, knuckles at each other um, is always going to Trump. Uh, John McDonnell undermining, having a swipe at Sadiq Khan, because it doesn't feel as relevant to the national picture in any sense.
2: Which actually was a point that Labour had when the coalition was formed. The, yes. the battles between the Tories and the Lib Dems were much more interesting than than anything that Labour was doing. Now, because we've um, been touching on the EU referendum, we do need to do the EU, the hugely popular red box
0: sweepstake. I've been dreading this moment ever since, all the time I listen in America to this podcast. I think, what am I ever going to say to this question if I'm ever asked it? Well, you have at least got an advantage over those <laughs> of us who
2: who made our guesses some <laughs> (laughs) weeks ago. (laughs) We're currently sitting in the mix of polls suggesting that that Leave might win. Very much your side Tim. So what do you predict as the percentage of the
0: vote that Remain will get? Well I'm hoping, hoping, hoping hoping that Leave will win but my head still tells me there will be a drift to the status quo so I'll go for 53.83 Remain. Very good. Now Lucy, you have done this before.
3: I feel I've said something very, very similar to that.
2: (laughs) So are you going to stick with whatever? It was? I should. We should have looked it up. 50. We should have
3: looked it up, shouldn't we? Yeah, it was. Def- it's definitely fifty-three points. I think I'll say fifty-three point zero.
2: Very good. And Lucy Bannerman, what do you think Remain will get?
3: Oh well, I'm. I'm hoping
4: Remain will get it, but um, I think by a whisker. What's the What's the political <laughs> jargon for that? I'm not sure, but I think Remain. I'm hoping Remain will will just win. Oh, fifty Uh,
2: Very good. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, uh, As ever, you can send in your uh, own predictions for the sweepstake to redbox at thetimes.co.uk or on Twitter at TimesRedBox using the hashtag RedBoxSweepstake. Now, though, Tim is going to talk to us about the events in America.
0: Donald Trump was his crass, insensitive, narcissistic self on Twitter in the media aftermath of Sunday's homophobic mass shooting in Orlando on Sunday. But brace yourselves, a YouGov opinion poll for the Times find that he has a 7% lead over Hillary Clinton when Americans are asked who will keep them safe. Terror could be the issue that puts Donald Trump in the White House. ISIS may have worked that out and they know his policies could be their best possible recruiter. So Tim, it was very, very quick after the
2: shooting at the gay bar in Orlando happened that... Donald Trump in particular took, you know, took mm-hmm. to Twitter as politicians do, but far from just paying uh, respects and thoughts of the family, he immediately started using it to score political points.
0: But what, what's your take? does that does that go down well in America? It goes down well sometimes and you know compared to lots of politicians whose Twitter accounts read like they've been, you know, written by committee. Yeah. You know Donald Trump's—you know—he writes them. You know, <laughs> there's spelling mistakes, there's anger, there's rawness there, and of course, that's one of the reasons why he's done so well in this race. In a, in a, you know—you talked earlier about all politicians lying through their teeth. Well, we get the real Donald Trump. Maybe you know, that's his Twitter um, handle. But whether we want it, of course, is another question. But people love that authenticity, or a good number of people love that authenticity. And sometimes it backfires on him. When we had the recent downing of the um, Egyptian airline in the Mediterranean, you know, he was immediately, before any expert had said what the cause of it was, he was blaming terror. You know, he was very... Um, quick um on Sunday to say I appreciate all of your thanks for saying to me that you know I have been vindicated <laughs> in my tough line on time. Yeah, yeah. you know, before he was really expressing concern or upset or any empathy for the families of the the people who'd lost their lives he w- he was making political points and you know as I've seen in all of my time in America you know he was absolutely knocked out of the park by pundits on Sunday, as he was during nearly all of the course of his presidential race, but then this opinion poll that we conduct for the Times pops up. And what do voters say? They prefer his position on terror to Hillary Clinton's. And there is this massive gap between the, you know, the Chastrian classes for want of a better expression, and the average American. And what's I think really striking for British
2: people, looking across what's happening in America, is if something like that happened in this country the big debate will be about gun control and actually that does, that never seems to happen you know Barack Obama again has to say how sad he is that he's again having to say mm. how sad he is but nothing that doesn't appear to be part of the debate and actually the debate is all about how tough Donald Trump can be with with foreigners
0: yeah well I, you know i'm much rather glad that i'm a british citizen with our gun laws you know that's for me the ideal situation but i do understand why americans don't see gun control as the answer because you know it's a nation of 319 million people and i think about 360 million guns um, of convicted criminals never get their guns legally. You know, America is so awash with guns, they can get them on the black market, they can get them from family and friends. So yes, some measures absolutely should be taken to limit semi-automatic weapons and background checks. But because there are so many guns out there and no one is able to execute a mass disarmament, those measures will not really make any difference to America's gun problem.
2: Yeah. 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 Lucy Bannerman, what do you what do you make of looking from this side of the Atlantic? What do you make of the rise of Donald Trump? Well,
4: like most people, it's just absolutely terrifying. But I think it comes back to this idea of, you know, authenticity. And it just shows that authenticity, even alarming authenticity, is still more appealing to to voters than than just robot politicians who seem to be so disconnected and so alienated from the electorate. And it's again, it's all about, it's that directness that he has that people are able to connect with. So, you know, that is his greatest strength. It's the way he uses language, the way, whether it's spelling mistakes or saying something completely inflammatory. People can, can, it's something that people can, Understand, they can react to it, and for better or worse, it has a far stronger impact than all the incredibly careful political discourse that that just seems to be so bland. Again, it just turns people off.
2: Lucy Fisher, what do do you think of the way that politicians react to events like the one that happened in America, and and the speed with which it suddenly turns into a political Mm -hmm. debate rather than the the immediate?
3: Well, we've seen it Saturday. in the UK yesterday with Aaron Banks's leave.eu immediately disseminating a poster saying, you know, the Orlando shootings are why we need to leave Europe. So, taste in the UK uh, is slightly different to the US. So, um, leave.eu is immediately.
4: Ready to pop the question?
1: chastised for for the poster and uh, apologies were
3: um, were demanded uh, and were forthcoming but i feel it's it's a difficult one donald trump feels to me like the worst instincts that anyone might have privately the sort of <laughs> the the maybe the primal emotional reaction that people have to terrible appalling shocking devastating events can be anger to lash out and he's like this public embodiment um of people's worst instincts which are overcome by civilization by taking a deep breath and looking at what the real causes of something are it's just hugely worrying but i i i'd be interested to hear what you think tim because i don't know the us at all well but i, I kind of feel that donald trump couldn't happen in the uk Do do you think that's right
0: I think so. I hope so. Um, I think there's all sorts of protections that we have against that sort of phenomenon. And not least, we are a parliamentary system. You know, mm-hmm. It's much harder for one individual to emerge from, a, from that kind of um, less personality-driven uh, system. And um, you know, one of the things I also value, you know, the BBC drives me crazy on lots of occasions. But I think one of the things that is completely missing from America is a national conversation. There is a big dominant broadcaster which fact checks, which has to give balance. You know, the amount of coverage that CNN and Fox and MSNBC gave to Donald Trump. You know, he was winning as much coverage as all of the other presidential candidates put together. Because, you know, frankly, when you are paid by how much ratings you achieve as a producer, who are you going to put on? television are you going to put on marco rubio talking about his exciting new childcare policy <laughs> or are you going to put donald trump on who you know is going to say something that's going to get people um excited so i i i'm actually sort of one of my big learnings from america is a is a re-appreciation of having the bbc for for all of its faults and talking to Anne applebaum the Eastern European commentator about this recently, she said it's not just America versus Britain. Actually, most of Europe doesn't have a national broadcast anymore and therefore a national conversation. So I shall continue to criticise the biases of the BBC and hold it accountable in my little way, but I'm grateful for it, and I think it's probably one of our best protections to, in answer to your question, Lucy.
4: If I just may add to that, what I was struck with um, you know, when I was following the broadcast analysis um, yesterday after the Orlando shooting... In a way, it seems for me that the British analysis had also drifted away from the the main point, which I feel should be about gun control. It seemed to have drifted into a sort of secondary debate as to whether this was a homophobic, you know, whether this attack was motivated by homophobia, whether it was ISIS. Of course, that's legitimate to question those things, but. Th- The categorization of it almost seemed more important than the actual gun control itself. And it seems a bit perverse to, in in a way, all these attacks have one thing in common, in that they are all um, committed by, it's almost the criminally insane people for whichever, you're trying to apply logic to something which, by definition, in itself has no logic. There can be no logical explanation as to whether you know what motivated this person to enter a club where people feel should feel safe and do what he did. And and there seems to be a lot. There seems to be a drift away from the whole gun control debate and the power of the NRA, which although we've had a million times before, that should never become tedious because that is what is at the heart. Of this whole epidemic, and I, I felt that was slightly lost in the British mm. um, broadcast coverage in the last few days.
2: Tim, just before we move off from this, what's your sense of what will actually happen in the race to the White House? Cool.
0: First of all, you want me to forget the Brexit part, <laughs> <but I, laughs> and I, then I, if we could do Saturday's lottery numbers, <laughs> that would be great. You know, I thought Ed Miliband would be the prime minister. I thought Jeremy Corbyn couldn't be Labour. Leader, um, I thought Donald Trump couldn't win the Republican nomination, so there should be a big health warnings attached to my predictions. But I think ultimately Donald Trump will implode. He will do something st- even more stupid than he's done so far. And you know, I think the American people are fundamentally decent. He's only, remember, got so far. He's won the Republican nomination by appealing to 6 or 7% of the American people. You know He's got to win 40% to, to, to win the, the presidency. I think, though it is competitive, and I think the biggest gap in British people's understanding of American politics is, is Hillary Clinton, why she is so unpopular. You know she, she has been around for 25 years, lots of scandals of various kinds attached to her. She's associated with policies on immigration and free trade um, and Wall Street many americans now represent and donald trump for many people does just seem like a breath of fresh air so i think she will prevail but i wouldn't put any money on it excellent stuff well
2: we look forward to seeing uh, how that pans out now though lucy bannerman is going to talk us through what happens when interviews go wrong
4: you know an interview is not going well when the interviewee seems unable or unwilling to venture off script for a moment And you know it's going really badly when, ten minutes in, the interviewee stands up and runs out of the room. This happened to me last week. The interviewee in question was not, like many of the people I've interviewed for The Times over the last ten years, someone describing an awful tragedy that's befallen themselves or their family, or someone who's been thrust into the spotlight by factors of fate beyond their control. This was a politician, Luciana Berger, MP for Liverpool Wavertree and Shadow Mental Health Minister, who has just announced her bid to run the new role of Metro Mayor for the Liverpool city region. Now, this is a big job. New powers ceded from Whitehall under the devolution deal will give the new Metro Mayor, whoever he or she may be, control over an annual budget of £30 for investment in key areas across transport, planning, economic development. So, you know, this was Berger's chance to set out her stall to tell readers, to tell the electorate what she was going to do. And instead, what we got um, were ten minutes of empty platitudes about listening and making a difference and when I dared to nudge her on to topics, potentially more interesting topics, she panicked, she froze and she ran out the room to consult a press advisor. That just struck me as completely bizarre behavior for an elected politician.
2: Now, Lucy, the piece that was in the Saturday's Times, if, if people want to go back and read it, because it is, it is definitely worth reading. Um, partly, I think, she managed to capture what I think uh, all political journalists at some point have had an interview like this. I think possibly what happens is political journalists might sometimes gloss over that because, you know, they need to keep on the side of the interviewee. Uh, but because you, like you said, you're, uh, you cover all sorts of uh, different areas of news and interview lots of different people so I mean when the intro is things go from tense to awkward within 10 minutes of meeting Luciana Uh, when you ask her to to, do for three words to describe Jeremy Corbyn's leadership there was a silence and then she says can I think about that and come back to it I mean it was just I mean I was cringing just reading it was it was it as bad as it felt reading the piece
4: possibly even worse because <laughs> as, a, as a strategy it just doesn't work if you've got ambitious politicians there's this sense that you know one false move one wrong line and they're dead that they can't afford to say anything wrong and then you know the wheels come off it's all over but in fact that's not true all she did by not saying something spontaneous and natural and then coming back to it at the end of the interview was you know put more pressure on the three words that she did come up with, finally.
2: <laughs> and what, what, um, I can't remember, what, 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 what were well, what
4: we, the words? Yeah, well, we didn't even introduce them in the piece because, sadly, <laughs> they were too boring. But it was engaging, collegiate, and listening.
2: Oh, God. And,
4: I mean, as a strategy, it just doesn't work, because this is someone who should be able, if she's going for such a big job, she should be able to talk in a natural way about what she plans to do with it. And she seemed terrified of of just seeing anything natural or spontaneous, to the point that even talking about childhood ambition was difficult. We discussed how she didn't always want to be an MP. Growing up, she wanted to be... She said... A police person. A
0: police person was absolutely <laughs> terrific. I did, love... did. She ask for the interview, Lucy, or did we ask for her? You know, what was where? How did it come about? Because I
4: think we had possibly approached her because um, of the bid, so that was the hook. And it, it's a really interesting job to go for. And she's a very interesting, you know, sh- MP. She's Britain's <laughs> youngest Jewish MP, and obviously given the anti-Semitism problems within labour at the moment there were lots of things to talk about um, but when we did try and venture on to ken livingston to, to jeremy corbyn she just seemed to panic and was terrified that we weren't talking about not just talking about the, the the mayoralty bid but not talking about it in the way that she had prepared
2: and how does this rank against other terrible interviews that you've done
4: I've not had many where people actively run out of the room, (laughs) which does make you feel slightly paranoid. But, you know, they've been worse. Um, One of the worst, which um, I remember well, is um, having a stand-up row with Bob Geldof, which um, happened after four days of travelling together around Ethiopia. It had been a fascinating trip, but I'd listened to him for four days talk about, you know, haranguing governments about increasing international aid, then when I dared ask him about his own tax status and he revealed that he was a non-DOM um, and therefore, you know, restricting the amount legally that he was contributing in tax and therefore, you know, restricting the amount that governments would be able to pay in aid, and. Um, he blew up and I stood there with him jabbing his finger in my face, spitting on me, wow. swearing at me, telling me he hated me. <laughs> and that, maybe, maybe I should think about all these things and connect them. <laughs> I'm that.
2: What about you, Lucy Fisher? What interviews have you had that have gone, gone badly wrong?
3: I don't think I've ever had the badge of honour of anyone getting up and bolting, so um, I congratulate you, Lucy. B. Um, <laughs> I'm getting quite paranoid now. Actually, <laughs> I don't know. I'm. I don't think I've ever had um, any particularly bad ones. Sometimes you do just get, and I think it is a problem with politicians when they agree to an interview without actually having anything to say or announce. I mean, all professional, the real operators, they know that if they—if you're going to sit down, you're going to give them a page or even a spread in the Times of London, um, you're going to want a big news hook for that piece. And um, the the smart ones come ready for that and ready to give a bit of themselves, talk a bit about their personal life. You know, in these times, you know, that involves a spouse, kids interests childhood ambitions it just strikes me as odd that you encountered uh, an MP who just seemed totally unprepared to ask you know Mm -hmm. quite quite obvious questions to me.
4: I, I should add to be fair you know once we did have that first really awkward encounter she came back after you know five minutes out of the room we continued to have a very awkward half hour chat and then after we agreed that look, we can't possibly we need more if we're going to use this in, you know, and give this a prominent slot in the Saturday edition of the Times newspaper. So she agreed, you know, to have another interview and we met the following day and had another hour talking about these issues. Again, there was very little of interest to report. Again it was the same platitudes, the same script. And as a result, an interview that could have been a double page spread in the Times on Saturday, the big Saturday interview, her unveiling her bid to become Liverpool's first Metro Mayor. Instead, oh. we got a much smaller piece, which had far less impact. So for her campaign, it, it, it wasn't the best strategy to use at all.
2: It, it, but it, it, it did make for a great read. Um, I have to remember, I think my the weirdest interview I've done was the first time I interviewed David Cameron. And went to his was told to go to his this is when he was still Tory leader in opposition. Was told to go to his house in North in Notting Hill. And he walked into his front room with his hand in his trousers, tucking his shirt in, was very <laughs> surprised uh to find me there because he thought he was gonna be talking to somebody from Aberdeen. Uh so we got off on a slightly weird he was sort of oh, who he didn't know who I was or what I was doing in his front room. We then got in a car because he was driving to go campaign. We did the interview in the car and It was sort of fine. He was talking about how much he loved Devon and Cornwall, which was the patch I covered at the time. And then the conversation sort of dried up a bit. And his spin doctor, George Eustace, who's now a Tory minister, said, well, have you got everything that you need? I said, yeah, no, I think it was all all very good. And he just told me to get out of the car there at some traffic lights somewhere in West London. And uh, this is before I had a phone which could tell me where I was. (laughs) So I just had to walk around. Uh, West London until I found a bus stop which told me I was at the far end of the King's Road
0: not a good recipe for a good write-up no, no. Thought, no.
2: but a good uh, <laughs> yeah it's been sort of all downhill since then Lucy I really appreciate that it's good uh, good to have had you on the podcast this week um, unfortunately that's all we've got time for uh, this week let us know what you uh, think about any of the issues we've been discussing by emailing redbox at the uk or on twitter at times red box where you can also send your sweepstake predictions you can subscribe to the podcast via itunes or on your android device but before we go a special mention to james price who got in touch to say he's finally signed up for the red box email briefing after what he described as months of podcast pestering uh, you can be like james too by going to the times.co.uk forward slash red box email but for now from lucy tim lucy and me it's goodbye Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.